Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Hello, good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning. Okay, our science story this week is a nice sweet one involving chocolate. Is it? Well, sort of. Go on, you tell me what it is then, because I don't know. <laughs> the sequencing of the DNA of a human with a gadget in relation to chocolate bars. just that the sweetest item in the sentence is the one that came to my mind. Uh, trust you to pick on the chocolate. No, th- this, this is a terrific story because actually I was present when they announced the first draft of the human genome in the year 2000. I was sitting in the audience and Sidney Brenner, who was one of the Nobel Prize winners who who actually worked out how DNA turns into messages in cells back in the, the early days of the DNA era, he gave a, a special private talk in Cambridge in the year 2000 and said, tomorrow there's going to be this really big announcement. And that was the first draft of the, the human genome. But that genome actually cost billions of pounds dollars, whichever way you want to look at it, it was huge amounts of money to do. But a third of it was done by the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute in the UK. Two thirds was done in America. It took them more than a decade to read the three billion genetic letters that code for a human. But that's why this story, which came out last week by researchers in the UK, this is uh, Matt Luce and his colleagues, they announced that they had repeated this phenomenon, sequenced an entire human, but they did it in a matter of days to weeks and it cost about a thousand pounds. And the way they did it was instead of using a building the size of a warehouse with machines the size of cars to read DNA sequence, which is what the original initiative took, they did it using something called an Oxford Nanopore Sequencer. Uh, It's invented by a company, Oxford Nanopore. It's basically the size of a chocolate bar, and it plugs into the USB socket on a computer, and the DNA goes into this device... And the way this sequences DNA is that inside the device is a cartridge, and inside that cartridge is a very thin film. And the film is punctuated with tiny holes, hence nanopore. And the DNA flows over this film and drops through the holes. And if you imagine a rubber sheet and you're pulling, say, the beads on a necklace through the rubber sheet and they go pop, pop, pop as they go through the holes, there's a current flowing through the holes electrically. And as each of the DNA letters pops through the hole, it changes the current in a characteristic way. The machine can read this, and it feeds those current changes into the computer, which then is recording what the genetic sequence is that's being fed to it. And this enabled them to read an entire human in a matter of weeks. And so it's a proof of concept, but it's also a a staggering example of how technology has shrunk from something that took literally warehouse-scale buildings and car-sized machines 13, 14 years ago and billions and billions of pounds to do Mm. down to something the size of a chocolate bar. You could do it in your living room. And isn't that an amazing achievement? Absolutely amazing. And the chocolate bar made a a cameo appearance in the explanation. Uh, Brett, in four ways, what question do you have for Chris? Uh, My question is, there's a guy uh, named Patrick Holford who recommends 
that the best way to treat the cold is to give yourself high doses of vitamin C because viruses struggle to survive in a high vitamin C environment in your body. I was wondering if, if that could be used to, to help people deal with AIDS because AIDS being a virus, would it be sensitive to the, to the pH change in the blood if you're taking high levels of uh, vitamin C? Okay. Um, a number of things to unpack here. First thing is that vitamin C is ascorbic acid, but it won't change the pH of your blood. The pH of your blood is 7.4, give or take, which is slightly on the alkaline side, and it's very tightly controlled because if you mess around with the pH of your blood, it makes all of the chemical reactions in your body work less well and it makes you feel ghastly. So the body takes enormously rigid steps to make sure that your pH does not change. So taking vitamin C is not going to change the pH of of the cells in your body because it's all buffered. In terms of the action of vitamin C on viruses, the evidence on this is not clear. It's very limited, um, any, any effect of taking vitamin C over and above what constitutes a healthy diet. There's not really any evidence for vitamin C being a cure-all for viruses. So I don't want anyone to go away from this program thinking, right, now I have to rush out, buy loads of vitamin C, and I'm going to cure my cold, I'm going to cure my flu, I'm going to cure HIV. That isn't going to happen. And if it was as simple as that, then people would have discovered the cure for HIV decades ago, and they haven't. These things are much more subtle and they're much harder to deal with. And one of the reasons viruses are so hard to tackle and why we have antibiotics that kill bacterial infections, but we don't have very many at the moment, very good antiviral drugs for things like the common cold, is that a bacterial cell is an independent, separate entity which is very different to a human cell. So it's very easy, relatively speaking, to make a chemical, an antibiotic, which can discriminate between a human cell and a bacterial cell and only kill the bacterium. Viruses are tiny particles. A flu virus, for example, is one ten thousandth of a millimetre across. It's literally an infectious bag of genetic information. It's so small, there's not enough room inside the virus to put in all of the things it needs to make new viruses. The way it does that is it hijacks your cells and it co-ops the machinery inside your cells to turn them into virus factories to make more viruses. Therefore, in order to make an antivirus drug, you've got to find some way of preventing the virus growing in your cell but not damaging the way your cell works normally. And that's the real challenge because the virus is using all of the same machinery in your body when your body's healthy to make viruses. So it's really tricky to find things that exclusively the virus does, which you can block up and stop, but not damage your healthy tissue and make yourself have side effects in the process. And this is what's been the real big challenge for curing viruses. Um, It's not as simple as just chucking in a few vitamins, unfortunately. Having a healthy diet and a healthy lifestyle is going to help, but it's not going to cure you. Your immune system needs to do that at the moment until clever uh, chemists and scientists can come up with better ways to pick on viruses exclusively. Here's one from the SMS line. That's a nice, cute one ahead of Valentine's Day next week, Chris. Grace wants to know the following, uh, the answer to the following question from you. Why is it that whenever you start really liking someone, your brain's immediate reaction appears to be to panic <laughs> and go into flight or flight, fight or flight mode as if your life is in danger? Well, the biochemistry of love, Chris? The other thing that uh, it does do is it sort of disconnects your tongue from the language centre in your brain, doesn't it? And you just come out with utter... I don't know about you, but you know when I was trying to chat my wife up, I used to come up with utter drivel. And you just all these erudite things that you wanted to dazzle these people with, when, when actually you try to put them into play, it's just 
goes totally wrong. And, um, <laughs> and actually, it is down to the fight or flight reaction. And the reason for this is that when we really like someone, then it's a strong stimulus to us. It's something we, we really worried about. It's something that really matters to us. And this strongly engages your sympathetic nervous system, which is the part of the nervous system that gets activated during fight or flight. So the, the mere fact of approaching someone which intimidates us or makes us nervous because either we really, really like them or they're really scary or we're worried they're going to punish us or something... It all does the same thing. It engages your fight-or-flight reaction. It leads to a big release of adrenaline into the bloodstream and it makes you feel panicky and on edge. And when you're worried more about getting away from a situation, then you're not thinking so much about how to dazzle someone with the amazing things that you're saying and, uh, and, and all the other things that we try to do in order to make ourselves look impressive. And so I think it's because people are nervous that they do this. Glenn, good morning. What is your question? Hello, Glenn. Hi. Uh, hi, Chris. Um, if you're in a shower cubicle, the windows are closed, the door is closed, there's no draft in there. But you're standing inside, there's no movement on that curtain. The minute you open the, the water, it flows towards the curtain. But the curtain will move towards you. Why is that? Well, I think the, the thing is that you, you've said there's no movement in there, but then you said, I turned the water on. The water's presumably falling under gravity and it's coming from the ceiling. So therefore there's a big net movement of water coming from the ceiling downwards. Now the water droplets as they fall are going to push air in front of them and push air outwards. So there's therefore going to be air movement and circulation within the shower and the water's hot. So the hot water is going to turn into some water vapour and steam. It's going to heat the air up in the shower. So you're going to have warm rising air, which is going to carry the steam upwards. So as soon as you turn the water on, you're actually introducing an enormous amount of movement within the air in the room and in the shower cubicle. And it's going to be very similar, I would say, to the piece of paper experiment. You can try this yourself, everybody. If you just get a sheet of A4 and hold it so that um, you've got the the short edge at, at one end between your finger and thumb of both hands, put that against your lower lip and blow, and you blow across the top of the sheet of paper, and you'll see that the paper actually lifts up and comes horizontal as you blow across it because the air from your mouth is being pulled down and sticking to the curved surface of the paper. That's called the Coanda effect. And because you're pulling the air downwards onto the paper, the air pulls the paper backwards and it creates lift over the paper. It's basically similar to how an aeroplane wing works. And I think you're doing a similar experiment with your shower curtain in your shower. OK, 17 minutes after 10, you're listening to The Naked Scientist. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Go to Edenvale next. Steve, good morning to you. Good morning, guys. So, Chris, when a spacecraft leaves Earth's atmosphere and goes into space, my question is, Will it remain stationary relative to its position on Earth? And do you have to be in orbit to feel weightlessness? Hi, Steve. Um, a couple of good questions there. In fact, very relevant to what's been happening this week with the launch of the Falcon Heavy rocket from Cape Canaveral and uh, the fact that Starman is up there in Elon Musk's red Tesla uh, out in space. <laughs> the answer to your question is that in order to escape from the gravity of Earth, you have to be travelling sufficiently fast, and that's at an escape velocity, which is literally kilometres per second. It's, it's a high speed, something like um, nine kilometres per second to get into orbit. Now, when you're travelling that fast... What you're effectively doing is you are uh, moving away from the Earth, but you're also falling back to the Earth a bit. 
So the best way of thinking about this was the way that Isaac Newton put it in his original works a few hundred years ago. Because Isaac Newton suggested, well, if we imagine a cannon and I fire a cannon, the cannonball comes out of the cannon and gravity pulls the cannonball down and it hits the earth. So it comes out of the gun, goes in a, a sort of curved path down and hits the ground. Now I want to imagine I'm firing the gun a bit harder. So the gun fires the cannonball harder and it comes out of the gun, it goes a bit further before on its curved course down it hits the earth's surface. Then Newton said, if I make the gun fire really, really, really hard, what will actually happen is that the shell or the cannonball will come out of the cannon and it will keep going in this curved course down towards the earth's surface. But because the earth is itself curved, every time the cannonball curves down a bit, the earth has curved down a bit. And so it's always falling down towards the earth, but it never actually hits the earth because it keeps missing. And that's what we call an orbit. So in other words, if you're going sufficiently fast to have something falling but moving away at the same rate that the planet's surface is curving away, it will be in orbit. And that's what you need to do to achieve a stable orbit. You are not going to actually stay in the same position relative to the Earth's surface because you will not be moving at the same speed that the planet is rotating unless you go to a specific position uh, relative to the, the, the Earth in terms of altitude, and that's a geostationary orbit. If you were to orbit at about 36,000 kilometres above the Earth's surface, this is where geostationary satellites orbit. At that altitude, the velocity of their orbit matches the rate at which the Earth is turning, and that means that relative to the Earth's surface, you would stay in the same place. And that's how the satellites that are used by, for instance, communications, beaming television shows and things, that's actually how they work, because they're using a satellite that's always over the same place on the Earth, so you can always see the satellite, it can always see you. To experience weightlessness, you don't have to go into space to do that. You can experience weightlessness by going to a fairground or jumping off of a very high building, because you're just in freefall. Weightlessness is in freefall. So if you're in a rocket and you're in orbit around the Earth, the reason that this is a stable form of weightlessness is that the rocket is falling towards the Earth because it's in orbit, like Newton's cannonball. You're inside the rocket, you're also falling towards the Earth, like Newton's cannonball, but relative to the rocket, you're staying still. So the two of you are falling, you're both in freefall, and therefore you experience weightlessness. Um, but it'll go on forever because you're never going to hit the ground, hopefully. Hendrik, you had an interesting question. I'm glad that we got you back on the line. Uh, go ahead. What do you want to ask, Chris? Uh, thank you, CBS. Yes, uh, Dr. Chris, I would like to know how exactly GPS works. Uh, it's a bit confusing <laughs> to understand. <laughs> if you could please explain that to me. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Hendrik. There's a number of uh, satellites, a big constellation, to use the space analogy of satellites up in space. These form a big network, and the satellites are sending very weak radio signals down towards the Earth's surface. Imprinted into those radio signals is a time code. And so when your GPS device receives those signals, it sees the imprinted time code, and it receives input from a number of these different satellites at the same time. It's then able to work out, based on when the signal left each satellite because of the imprinted time code, and relativity, because when things are moving very fast, like these satellites, and they're also affected by a different amount of gravity, time changes for them a little bit, so you have to compensate. Your GPS receiver uses those time codes to work out when the signals must have left each of the different satellites to therefore triangulate or pinpoint your position on the Earth's surface by working out how long the light has been travelling between the satellite and where you see it and comparing 
the inputs from each of the satellites to therefore give a very precise measurement of your position on the Earth's surface. 22 minutes after 10, squeeze in one or two more of your calls. Dan, what question have you got? Morning, yeah. Is it possible to reverse polarity of water? And if so, a particular device uh, is needed? Polarity of water. Mm. I don't even know what yeah, that means, polarity. Chris, but that's yeah. the words that he's using. Yeah. Okay. Well, water is a polar molecule. What we mean by a polar molecule is if you were to zoom in with a really powerful microscope on water, what you would see is a thing that looks a bit like a boomerang. Um Water can be thought of as a bit like Mickey Mouse's head. You've got an oxygen atom, O, in the centre of the molecule and sticking out like the ears of Mickey Mouse or the arms of a boomerang are these two hydrogen atoms. The oxygen loves electrons. Oxygen is what we call very electronegative, so it pulls electrons towards itself very tightly. Hydrogen's only got one electron and it doesn't hang on to its electron very tightly. So the hydrogen ends up lending its electrons to the oxygen most of the time in the molecule. So if you look where the electrons are, they spend a lot of time around the oxygen and a lot less time around the hydrogen. And the effect of that is to make the hydrogen bits of the molecule, the ears of Mickey Mouse or the arms of the boomerang, a bit positive some of the time relative to the oxygen, which spends most of its time a bit negative relative to the hydrogen. And this creates a polar molecule. And this is why water has some strange properties. For instance, if you run a comb through your hair many times, you will impart a static charge to the comb. If you bring the comb very close to a falling stream of water out of your tap, for example, you can bend the stream of water. You can do the same thing if you rub a balloon on your head and bring the balloon, which is now charged with static, close to the stream of water. It will bend. Uh, That's because water is a polar molecule and you are differentially affecting the water because you are bringing an electric field close to the water and the electric field interacts with this polarity. There's no way you're going to change the polarity of the water molecule because that's an intrinsic property of what it's made of, H2O, um, and that's why it behaves the way that it does. And if you stopped it behaving like that, then you'd have to A, rewrite the chemistry and physics textbooks, but B, you wouldn't have water anymore. Let's take one from the SMS line again, Chris. Here's a question from Anonymous. They want to know what causes a nose to just bleed seemingly out of nowhere, whether you're sitting or standing. The posh medical term for a nosebleed is epistaxis. And this is quite common in young children. And when I was doing a surgical job or an A&E job in hospital um, at the beginning of my medical career, the first thing I would do if a parent brought a kiddie in to say he keeps having nosebleeds or she keeps having nosebleeds is you'd pick up, you'd say, which hand do you write with? And then they would say, 90% of the time they'd show you their right hand. Look under the fingernail of the right index finger. Because the commonest reason for spontaneous, frequent, recurrent nosebleeds is excavation with an index finger. Nose picking. And this is because (laughs) when you shove things up your nose, the lining of the nose has a really rich blood supply. And the reason for that is, one, to help you to make the air warm and damp as you breathe it in, which helps to avoid trauma to the airways deeper down. It also helps your immune system to work. Um, But it also helps probably with smelling. The thing is that with a rich blood supply, if you shove things into your nose, you're going to traumatise the blood vessels and encourage bleeding to happen. 
There are, of course, other reasons why you may have nosebleeds. One of them is that the blood isn't clotting properly, and that's worth getting investigated. You could also have things like tumours sometimes, including benign growths in the nose that can do this. Infections can do this, and some drugs can do this. So there's a whole range of reasons. And if the thing to bear in mind is if you can't explain it on the basis of, say, a young kid picking their nose, if it's a new thing that suddenly started to happen, something must have changed, and it may need investigating. If it's a one-off and you've had a recent virus infection that could have traumatised the lining of your nose, it's probably nothing to worry about if it then just goes away. Leslie, good morning. What is your question? Yes. Thank you for taking my call. And the naked scientist, I've read and I've uh, interacted with people with regard to um, technology called Rife Technologies. It was invented by Dr. Rife. Now, the way I understand it, and I'm not scientific or technical in the specs, so bear with me, it's to do with uh, resonance therapy. Um, so it, you... You feed your body with some electromagnetic therapy, which apparently, uh, if you determine the frequency of the parasites, you can kill those parasites in your body or pathogens in your body. I just want to know if you know of this therapy and, you know, um, can you enlighten me more on that? If I'm honest and being quite frank, the answer is no. Um, This is not something I've really come across. Uh, It sounds a little bit fringe or edge case to me, but if you have some references that you can send me, I mean, it's certainly true that there are certain frequencies of electromagnetic radiation that will influence our tissues. That's how a microwave oven cooks food in your kitchen. It's using a specific frequency, which is about 2.5 gigahertz, 2.5 billion cycles a second, to make water molecules vibrate, and that cooks stuff. And if you were to put yourself in the microwave oven, you would cook yourself. So our tissues are definitely capable of interacting with electromagnetic and other sorts of radiation but I'm not familiar with someone using this to selectively and discreetly pick on parasites or other bugs and leave our healthy tissue unharmed so if you have some references or some more information you can send me to chris at thenakedscientist.com I'm very happy to look at that for you Thanks so much for your question. I think, Dirk, if you make it very quick we'll see whether Chris can squeeze you in we've got about uh, 90 seconds left go for it Good day, I just want to find out why is the first reaction when someone falls, hurts themselves, or get a fright to laugh? Really? I was almost wanting to laugh then at that. So <laughs> you're saying that if I fall over, the first thing I do is laugh, or, or when we see someone Are you talking fall- about the bystanders, Dirk? Well, it's not seriously falling, but it, it's funny always, you know. If someone gets a fright or someone falls down, it looks funny, I don't know. <laughs> We're all maybe laughing we can, now. Maybe, no. maybe you can reinterpret the question, how does the funny bone work? <laughs> but no he's absolutely right that if you think about cartoons they're full of sort of people slipping on banana yes. skins and things and we do find it funny and and actually it's probably a social bonding thing that uh, we, we all laugh and we make light of the situation but it brings us together and it may well be that when you no know, a person who suffers adversity and then comes through it comes through it stronger with a stronger social group because we all laughed yes. and bonded and that may be the reason well, thank you for bringing us together every week on the show, Chris. <laughs> well, likewise to you, Eusebius. <laughs> Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.